Hello, this is Patrick, and it's time for Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Brought to you by thepracticalherbalist.com and sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, your source for high-quality, organic, bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. We've all heard the alarming statistics that tell us global climate change is real and happening now, even if we don't all agree on the cause. Herbalists and botanists are on, the, are on the forefront of the move to save as many of our plant friends as possible, but they're just the tip of the iceberg. Today we're talking with godmother of American herbalism, Rosemary Gladstar, about plant conservation and how all of us can save and protect our beloved plant species, species from extinction. Now here are your hosts, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to Real Herbalism Radio. Today we want to welcome to our studio one of the founders of UnitedPlantSavers.org, mm-hmm. who Rosemary Gladstar. Yeah, Thank welcome you. to our program. Thank you. I'm excited and honored to be here. Tell us about United Plant Savers. Yeah. Well, I'm honored to actually, um, it, you know, it's, I, I have to say, I think it's uh, really helping to change the voice of American herbalism because before United Plant Savers was formed, there was really little or no um, attention played to the conservation of native medicinal plants. Um, and in fact, we were just so happy to be using them that we were seeing many of the small companies um, were growing larger. They were actually making more and more products. And most of the plants, or many of the plants that we were using in these companies, were coming from wild, from the wild native sources. Um, and even though I would say that many of the people, many of the herbalists who started these com- companies, had a really deep love and respect of herbs. Um, we just hadn't really been taught or focused on how the plants were doing in their own communities. Mm-hmm. So it was actually it was actually because of the success of herbalism. We were seeing our classes were growing. We were seeing herb schools sprouting up, herb magazines. And then, of course, the, the marketplace was beginning to expand. And it was really because of the success that we just took a deep breath. And um, I think it was sort of happening with many herbalists. We were sort of asking ourselves those questions in a quiet way, like, so where are all these plants coming from? And if we're really, you know, gathering echinacea in the wild or golden seal from the wild sources, um, you know, how stable are these plant communities? And there were really no answers, not even in the wildflower societies, which had been paying attention for a long time to the health of plant communities, but not in particular the wild resources. So it was, it was at the 1994 International Herb Symposium Symposium, um, we were meeting with you know a large group of herbalists there. They came together to you know mostly teach about how, what we can, what the plants can do for us. It was mostly about you know the healing power of plants and how you know we could make plants into medicine and use plants for all different our body systems. So that was mostly what the conference was about. Um, but it was while we were there that I invited a small group of the herbalists to meet, and we met around a question. And the question was, you know, if there is a problem. Um, well, first of all, is, is there a problem? And if there is a problem, what can we do about it? And in that small room, we're about there was about 12 of us that met. We all had been noticing that in our own local habitats, plants at one time had been growing abundantly, weren't there anymore. Oftentimes, it was due to um, you know urban sprawl, habitat destruction. Sometimes it was just due because we had gone 
picking plants there for years and we taught our students and they taught their students. So yeah. sometimes it was from over harvesting, but I would be honest in saying over harvesting isn't the biggest problem. Herbalists are not the big problem. It's really habitat destruction, which includes urban sprawl and for logging practices. But the reason that we called herbalists attention to it is because when you love something, um, when you're passionate about something, you're willing to do something about it. And herbalists are passionate about plants. And There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, passion is what drives us. And so it was at that gathering that we decided to form an organization, and we called it United Plant Savers. And it's really become a national organization that's been a voice for plant conservation, medicinal plant conservation in the United States. Yeah, I, I know it's very easy for a small company that started with a couple of mason jars in their kitchen, and then all of a sudden they've got 55-gallon drums in a warehouse to to get lost, and and it's easy to forget, okay, what mattered in the kitchen and the priorities you have in the kitchen, those are different now. We have to look on a grander scale. You have to open your eyes a little wider to see what the re repercussions are for your actions, and that can, that can blindside you. Absolutely, and especially in a culture that places such great value in the financial success. You know, it's, mm -hmm. in our country, we, in this country and in other Western industrial countries also, we isolate success from, you know, happiness and health and wholeness and how everything's thriving. It's really been changed, as we all know, and we're all trying to, you know, shift that that modality um, into a much ho more holistic thing. But yeah, even in, even in something that it was started off so pure as herb businesses, you know, there, right. you know, you, you get, you get, you get to that place where you have to, you know, you have to make a certain profit and you have to fill the herb shells and you have to compete with the other, you know, you don't like to think in those terms, but that's what was happening. And I might even just point out, you know, it's even, it happens on a very small scale as well as a large scale. It's not just uh large companies. It happens in the very small herb stores. Like, you know, one of the things I had a very small herb store in, in uh, Sonoma County where I grew up and I started noticing, you know, I was the only herb store in Northern California for years. And then, you know, very happily you start to see small herb stores in Northern California and in Southern and, you know, in the local towns. And you're happy to see that because it means that herbalism is spreading. But when you go and you look at those jars, you start to say, but where are all these plants coming from? And many of the plants that we love the most are native to the North American continent, and we did not have farmers growing them, so we knew they were coming from the wild. So my little, you know, half gallon of, you know, let's say Michella Reapens, uh, well, partridge berry, you know, I might I might say, well, you know, I just have a half gallon here. I'm just making a few products. But when you start to look at the massive tonnage amount that's required to meet the market, then you begin to realize what the problem was. And if I might add one other thing, it also takes us into the larger issue of, you know, another endangered species, which is the American farmer, and why it is that we have a growing herb industry where most of the plants, at least three-fourths more of the plants that we use in this in, in the herbal world could be grown by our farmers, and yet we're still purchasing them from developing countries, other countries, um, you know, these beautiful big companies that, you know, love the herbs and love their products, you know, they're doing great projects there, you know, they oftentimes are supporting women's co-ops and, you know, the mm -hmm. fair trade movement, but nonetheless, we have farmers in this country that are going out of business right and left, and we need to support these local farmers. It's a really big, important issue that needs to be addressed in the herbal industry. Okay. The only reason that we don't is because the herbs that are grown here cost more, but we also get better quality when they're grown here.
Yeah, right. and we provide better living for yeah, people our here. neighbors. I mean, yeah. it makes our communities thrive just like it makes our plant communities thrive. That's I right. think I feel so strongly about it because I was raised by farmers, and my, my parents, like many, many farmers in the 1950s and 60s, were put out of government by the you know, put out a business by the government that supported monoculture, right. that, that supported these very unhealthy agricultural practices that have created such demise in our health. And also, I'm so proud to say that my two of my children are farmers, or, and they grow organic medicinal herbs, and they're oh, successful at it. <laughs> and, and they're so writers, like their mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw that yeah. that book out. I have had a chance to see Pacific Botanicals in action, which is just yes. down the road from us here. We live in uh, the Eugene Springfield area, and Pacific Botanicals is just down south a little bit here in Oregon. And they have rows of different types of herbs all over the place, and it's it's organic, and it's just uh, a, a whole bees and butterflies and critters all over the place. It's a beautiful piece of paradise. That's a good addition to any community. It absolutely yeah. is. And, you know, I might, I might say, I would like to add about Mark Wheeler, who is the founder of mm -hmm. Pacific Botanicals. He was and one a of great the guy. And a great guy and one of the original organic farmers in this country, you know, of, of the modern movement in this country. He was one of those the great models of growing medicinal plants and creating a success story from it. So, yeah, it ties together. At-risk plants ties into, because, you know, when we look at some of these precious plants, some of the best medicines that we have to offer, not only, um, you know, American citizens, but, but really in the world, herbs like golden seal and the, the beautiful cohoshes and bloodroot and, you know, these great herbs, um, it's not that we want people to stop using them. These, these are incredible medicinals. They're also shamans of their own communities, you know, like mm -hmm. within the plant communities, they hold... They hold the medicine of the communities. It's not just medicine for humans. It's for, it's for the plant communities themselves and the animals and everything, all the life that thrives on them. But the, the way that we continue to use them and to ensure that they're intact in their native habitats is we grow them organically. We create those paradises that you're talking about. Yeah, we right, create right. these living paradises that bring the native pollinators back and the butterflies, the bees. Mm -hmm. You know, and also that make people healthy and happy. You know, it, it's how we're going to be healthy again. Yeah, here in Oregon, again, the we have Oregon Tilth, which is the predecessor for what we have for the organic standard nationally. Right. And that the first farmer that was certified is he lives in the Salem area, which is just up north of us a little bit. Uh, he grew shade-grown organic golden seal. Yes, yes. Yeah, he and his wife, and they have this beautiful place and really worked on the ground. And, you know, the last time I saw him, he was in his 90s, and he showed me a little a little dance that he had just learned. You know, he was a hoot and a half, you know. I mean, I love him. Whoever he is, yeah. I'm madly in love with him. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's a fantastic guy. And it, yeah. being willing to live on the edge and try something new, that's part of the herbalist community. You know, it's well, not it easy to be an herbalist. you got to be willing to be risky, and, and that kind of edgy mentality is how we end up with changes in activism in our community, which comes out to the whole United States, you know, and, and international. Oh, yeah. It's such yeah. a... You know, one of the things when you were talking about growing golden seal in a place like Oregon, because it's native to the eastern and southeastern and northeastern hardwood forest, so people, we always say, you know, you need to emulate the habitat that it grows in, but, and people are sometimes saying, well, you know, plants should be grown in their native habitat, but I always like to point out plants 
have moved around for literally millions of years. Some move very yeah. rapidly. They're designed mm -hmm. to, you know, wind dispersal, and they hook onto anything, you know, like burdock will hook onto anything and travel huge amounts of miles to find a new community to live in because it's a traveler. But also these plants that we consider habitat specific, they move, but they move slowly. And what, what we know about all of life, it wants to survive. It will fight to survive in the same way that our human cells fight to survive. And so plants are trying to survive and they're willing to stretch, just like you were saying, they're willing to go to the edge and to try growing in new habitats. So it's amazing the plants that grow in different, yeah. like a great example is I live in a zone three up here in Northern Vermont, a zone three, it's like two zones away from the Arctic and I have stunning gardens and I can grow things that really should not be growing in zone three. Yeah, well, the climate is changing, so yeah. our flexibility is changing, too. We can grow olives up here in Oregon. We couldn't do that <laughs> yeah. 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, and I think that's part of what makes plant conservation now that important, because as the climate's changing, some of those slower movers are not necessarily moving fast enough. Yeah, we so, don't want to lose them. So, so being able to take things that were originally were growing in more Southern California climate, but we can get them to grow here in Eugene is actually really helpful to the plant communities too. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I I love what you're just what you're saying, and I also think it's one of the reasons there's such a huge herbal renaissance. There's so many layers to why. You know, of course, yeah. you know, people are dissatisfied with um, some of the healthcare, and people are seeking, you know, to be self-empowered and, and take on more responsibility for their health. There's many layers, but one of the reasons that people often neglect is that the plants. The plants themselves, the plant communities, need our help. It may be one of the major reasons why the herbal renaissance, we think it's about us. I yeah. think it be about the plants. I think the plants have been doing a lot of calling. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. And, and when we yeah. co-create together, we do create that paradise again. That's really what it's about. It's about co it's merging and creating again those communities of plants and animals and people. And that's how we're healthy and thrive. And I don't need to tell you that because you know it. Yeah, we do. But, you know, what, what would your advice be to someone who's just starting out with herbalism? What should you be looking for? Let's say you know that you're not going to grow your own immediately. Maybe eventually you have plants for that but how do you pick your plants what is the best way to do that right well you know and one and one thing not everybody not every herbalist um, necessarily is going to make their own medicines it's not everybody's cup of tea and today they have choices they have other people that can grow their plants other people that can make their medicines so there's many ways that people can practice herbalism you know I know the old school I think it's really good to be fully immersed in them but I but I recognize it's not everybody's cup of tea to, but um, well, it takes time sometimes. I mean, when I started off with herbalism, I didn't grow my own, but now sometimes I do, and I do some harvesting, and it's, yeah. it's sort of a patchwork. Mm -hmm. So I think the most important thing is that when you use herbal products, you want to make sure that they're ideally organically cultivated. That way you're assured that you're supporting farmers who are cultivating the plants and that you're not using at-risk plants. The other is that if you are using wildcrafted plants, that they're weedy species. So wildcrafting is a one of our ancient arts. And, it, you know, the fact that some plants are endangered doesn't mean that there's prolific amounts of other plants, the weedy species. And so herbalists can still, you know, hone their skills wildcrafting on things like burdock and 
dandelion and all of, you know, most of the plants are weedy species that we use. But when you're a beginner, you're not sure of that. So you always want to make sure um, that you know the plants that are at risk. And a very simple way to do that is to print off the at-risk list from the United Plant Savers website. There's a very nice list. It's a list of about 25 or 30 plants total. So it's, uh, but they're, but they're, they're very important medicines, why it's important to know those plants. Um, it's also important to recognize that all companies will tell you that when they wildcraft plants that they do it ethically. I have never met a person who says they're an unethical wildcraft <laughs> right, or, right. or a company that does things ethically. And it's because they believe they do it, but there's different standards. Right. So to me, the bottom line is do not use wildcrafted plants that are on the at-risk list unless you absolutely know the person yourself. What I mean by that, if you know a farmer who lives in Appalachia and they've been living on their land a long time and they manage their stands of golden seal and ginseng, then yes, you can buy directly from them. But don't buy from a company unless you know them, because the chances are they're using plants that are unethically harvested. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, right. you know, it's a simple thing. It's just being conscious of what we purchase. It will say on the label these days, if it's being cultivated, it's going to say that because people are very proud of that. Just like 30 right. years ago, if it was wildcrafted, you know, that's what it said. If it doesn't say anything, then you should be suspicious. You should ask the question, where is this coming from? That's the least that we can do for herbalism in the plants today. Yeah, and there's a lot of weedy substitutions you can use. You don't need yeah, to have valerian sincensus. You know, yeah. you can have a valerian officinalis. It's really easy to grow in a garden. Or you yeah. can substitute Oregon grape for golden seal in most formulas. Mm -hmm. There are a few where I, I understand you can't, but... You know, yep. there's a lot of there might be substitution that's more appropriate to your area. Yeah, coptis used to be very prolific, and then it got over-harvested, and now we don't hardly have any more, so they substituted golden seal for it, and then it became endangered, and you know, that goes on. We get, but now coptis is starting to reemerge again. It's still in, in danger, of course, right. but we can make a change. We are doing it all the time. And if you want to take it a step further beyond making sure that you're buying and purchasing or procuring your, your herbs in the most um, organic and cultivated fashion you can. How can we take a step further in terms of our own gardens or... Well, that's a beautiful question because you, like, um, you, you can start your own garden sanctuary where you start to reestablish the wild native species. It's very fun. It's a wonderful project to do with a group of people or with your children where you do a little research. What grew in your area before cement and lawn? You know, what, what was there? Because when you start to plant those plants back in and there's always native medicinal species, it actually attracts those native pollinators, which are in dire straits in our communities right now. So mm -hmm. even the mere act of putting, you know, uh, like in our gardens, we might plant Joe pie weed or golden no seal and the native ginsengs and the coashes, and all of a sudden our gardens become pollinator rich, but with the native pollinators. So we see the native yeah. bumblebees, you know, and they, they have a communication amongst themselves. So one summer you might have four or five, and the next summer your garden's going to be a stopover for the, for the butterflies and all of those pollinators. And if we start to do this in our communities, it's like patchwork by patchwork. We start to knit the environment together again. And it's a beautiful, beautiful project. United Plant Savers um, has over a thousand acres now of individual sanctuaries across the United States that have, um, are 
you know, owned by people, individuals. Some of them are just small plots in towns, like a backyard. Some of them are in cities where, you know, it's just a very tiny little place in the city or a community garden. And some of them are 500-acre plots. Um, but together, they they become a statement for reestablishing native medicinal plants and just native plants in general. Um, How do you get involved in that? You just go to your website and say, hey, I want to plant some native medicinal, or what's the deal there? The United Plant Savers website is a service site. It's designed to get people active and involved. Um, and there's so many ways to do that. So the Sanctuary Project, we also have a wonderful, um, it's called Partners in Education, where if you teach classes, you can you can partner your classes with United Plant Savers, and they send you all these teaching materials so you can teach your students from the very ground up how to be um, ecological herbalists, you know. So it's great on that way. Um, and as I said, it also it's also very educational where it teaches us where we can buy plants for our gardens in our local areas that are have not been dug out of the wilds and then sold as nursery plants but are actually nursery grown. That's another problem, you know, with it was an enormous problem in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties with wildflowers in the United States where nurseries and plant lovers would go out and they would dig up these very habitat sensitive plants. I'm thinking of plants like lady slippers, and they never yeah. recovered, you know, in the native populations. And it was done by people who love plants and lack of education. Right. So, right. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, replanting a few of these plants and doing it with communities, like if you belong to a, a herb group or a plant society or a church or a local school, like going, I did that when I first came here. I went to my local, you know, little tiny school in this little tiny town I live in northern Vermont and just had the kids come out here and we planted and we put a boardwalk through the fen and took the kids out and showed them you know the lady slippers and talked about how sensitive they were in their environment so in their enthusiasm they wouldn't run out and you know, just joyfully pick a bunch of blossoms that might have, you know, 15 years yeah, yeah. for the plant to mature to bloom. So a lot of it's just education. And why is this important? Well, because our medicinal plants are part of the, in, the structure of integrity that holds our world together, really. It's that deep. You know, it's not only the medicine they give to humans, but it's the medicine. They're like the shaman plants in the plant communities, and we haven't even really begun to investigate how they work at holding the integrity of the plant communities together, let alone the people communities. <laughs> right. Yeah, I love that you talked about finding your local organizations and getting involved there as well, because there's a lot of us as our, in our area, there's a big thrust toward urban density, which means smaller and smaller patches of lawn and many apartments and condos with no lawn at all. Yes. So planting your own is really hard. I mean, you can do yeah. some maybe plant balcony. gardens, balcony gardens, mm -hmm. but getting involved in a group, a local group, is a wonderful way to help mm -hmm. conserve and spread the message. Yeah, there's some wonderful um, examples, too, you know, of United Plant Saver members. One, one of our beloved um, board members, Michael McGuffin, who's actually um, the president of APA, the American Herbal Herbal Products Association, um, and he's been a board member and very supportive of the mission of United Plant Savers since day one. Um, he lives in Venice, California. You know, it's a highly in populated area. And about 30 years ago, he got together with the community and reclaimed a vacant lot and has a thriving garden nice. filled with not only vegetables, but, with, you know, medicinal, native medicinal plants. Mm. So it's just, you know, there's a lot of examples like that. And 
you know, it's sometimes people feel so hopeless today, and there's so much to be hopeful for. Um, just because you see when people take those steps to be active, like you were saying, to be an activist, um, and start to feel like they can make a difference, we actually do make a difference. I'm a huge, huge believer in those famous words of, Mar- of Margaret Mead when she said, you never doubt what a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can do. You know, that they can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And it's been the motto of United Plant Savers since we were formed in 1994. Yeah, and it's yeah. played out it's through so history. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's how America was founded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a small group of citizens. Citizens. Mm-hmm. Getting yeah. together and communicating and listening to each other. That seems to be yeah. part of the key. Yeah. So thank you so much for your work with United Plant Savers and, yeah. and all your other and amazing everything else projects. Too, of course. Yeah, thank we you. have a list of things that we still want to ask you, but we don't have time on this program. So maybe we'll be able to get you for another program. Uh, ask those questions. You know, I, love, I love what you're doing, and I'd love to be a part of it. You know, I did want to mention that United Plant Savers has a few books out. My favorite is called Planting the Future, which is a very in-depth book that um, really addresses these issues and talks about these native plants. And also Richard Check who's one of your Oregonians. Mm-hmm. He was also a board member, and he was he's the founder, he and his wife are the founder of Horizon Seeds. Yep. Um, he wrote a wonderful book called Growing At-Risk Plants that actually gives very detailed instruction on how to, to grow all of these at-risk plants so that we can help to reestablish these native gardens in our community. So very good resources. Beautiful. I just want to invite everybody who uses plants to become a member of this very courageous and hopeful organization. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, I want to remind our listeners they can check out Rosemary's website, sagemountain.com. The United Plant Savers website is unitedplantsavers.org. Be sure to look for Rosemary's books, her herbal conferences, and her home study course, The Science and Art of Herbalism. And for more information, links, and resources that we mentioned on this program, check out our show notes on realherbalismradio.com. And be sure to sign up for our free newsletter, which includes links to upcoming recipes, how-tos, and newly published ebooks, and more detailed information on topics that we discussed on this podcast as we publish them on thepracticalherbalist.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Pinterest, and join in our conversations on Twitter. Now it's time for Herbalism and Homesteading News. I picked up this article on the on the internet, and it was from Dr. Tiaroni Lodog. She was referring people to it. It's written by Stephen Daniels back in June 19th of 2015 in a usacom link, and the it discusses this study, Echinacea plus elderberry matches Tamiflu for early prevention of flu, and it's stated as significant large trial supports echinacea's immune benefit. So this was a, a one that really caught my attention particularly because for one thing it's not just talking about one herb. Mm-hmm. It's talking about a common combination of herbs. Yeah, it's one of the things I love about it is the fact that they're finally like including elder in part, you know, 
They're, yeah. They've got two herbs there. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but it's a, they talk about in this article uh, some of the supporting research behind echinacea and how it's used for both flu and cold prevention. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. amount that uh, they're talking about there is, you know, 56% to 65%. Uh, you know, you add vitamin C to it and it's up to 86 in terms of their per, the prevention, prevention. Yeah. yeah, prevention rates, and then it, the, but the study that they're specifically talking about, it's actually a proprietary blend of el, uh, elderberry, the Sambucus mm-hmm. nigra, and the echinacea root, mm-hmm. and echinacea herb, used in a syrup base. Okay. So the last time I made a syrup, which was just before Thanksgiving, there, um, in real time. I put echinacea and elderberry together, and then this is in a, a honey-based syrup and mm-hmm. added some uh, vitamin C as a preservative and to, you know, make it a little right. more tasty because I didn't right. put as much honey in as I usually do. Right. Yeah, the specific one that they are citing is one that's a syrup that's sold in Europe, and I don't think we have it here. Yeah. But we have other things that are similar. I mean, mm-hmm. like... You know, the airborne is one of those right. tablets you could get that as echinacea and vitamin C. So if you took that and then added a little bit of elderberry tincture to it, probably pretty much be it duplicating would do it. Do the same thing, yeah. Yeah. And the, I think that duplicating it being you're using it consistently. Yeah. Exactly. And with elder <laughs> you have to use it every single day. You it can't skip out of your day. system. Yep. And it pulls those flu bugs right out with it. Yep. And with um, echinacea, you need to use it every day, but you need to use it for fourteen days and then take a rest for fourteen days. Because if you continue after about fourteen days your body gets used to it mm-hmm. and stops it stops having any real effect. So the way that echinacea works is that it increases your white blood cell count. Mm-hmm. So for 14 days or so, about two weeks, it'll keep your cells, white blood cells elevated and help you fight off germs. Mm-hmm. But after a couple of weeks, your body says, oh, well, we're tired. We're done with that. And mm-hmm. and then it just ignores echinacea's plea for more white blood cells. Right, the, the leukocytes. I think yeah. one other thing to keep in mind as a caveat is some people are allergic to echinacea. Yeah. Even if you are, I mean, like I'm allergic to the the echinaceous family, but I find Mm -hmm. that if I use it appropriately, it's not a problem. Right. And I, for me, the allergy is mostly, I have um, sinus sinus allergies and it's from the pollen. Right. So So in taking the plant isn't a problem. So taking the root isn't the problem. It's the whole herb. And that's, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. A lot of people are saying, oh, I'm allergic to um, anything in the compositia family, mm-hmm. which includes chamomile and things things that yeah. look like a dandelion. Yeah, it's pretty much like the whole daisy family, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a huge family. It is a know, huge family. Rivaled yeah. only by the orchid family. Right. Yeah. But it's really, it's the pollen people are, are yes. most often reacting to, not yep. the root not the root of the problem. Not the root. <laughs> not the root of the plant. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's wise if you do know that you're allergic to the daisy family. It's wise to try carefully, but try the various other ones. Because, like for me, I know that chamomile, fresh chamomile tea, is not good for me. But if it's dried, it's no problem. Mm-hmm. Essential oil is no problem. Mm-hmm. You know, echinacea has never given me any adverse reaction. Mm-hmm. But I also handle it very, very carefully. You know, are you using the herb part as well as the root, or mostly it's a root? I've done mostly. I think it's mostly the root because I think that's what tends to be in most of the formulas that you bought purchase over the counter. Yeah, but like the tinctures that I've taken that include the whole plant, 
haven't been a problem. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, just like smelling a daisy once will cause such an instant reaction. It's like, I look like I've got a horrible case of hay fever and it lasts Aww. for hours. Just one little sniff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, you know, it can be a strong reaction, but that's not to every one of those families. So, Right. Right. It, depend, it does depend on the person mm -hmm. himself. And I would think that there's a variety of other things people could substitute, like Helal, the, the prunella, would be a good substitution oh, yeah. for echinacea. I've used that frequently as an echinacea substitute or perhaps astragalus, which is also good for the immune system. Yeah. And those aren't mentioned here no. um, in that study. But, uh, you know, as herbalists, we have to learn how right. to how to make do well and i love like have. the heal all or the sometimes it's called self-heal like uh -huh. that one's one of those ones that people find in their lawns yes yeah. everywhere yeah like across all climates it seems to grow and just about everywhere and it's so maybe not pretty. the desert but probably you know. the desert. <laughs> yeah it's a nice one the they did talk about tamiflu and some people that are herb world might not be familiar with that one that's just a prescription uh, antiviral medication used for both flu prevention and flu treatment. Oh, okay. So if you go into the doctor and they, they'll—that's what they would give you commonly. Yeah, that's a pretty common right. um, prescription. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but I'd rather—I'd much rather do this. Echinacea and elderberry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I thought also with this study, which was kind of important, is that what they were talking about was that this is the gold standard study. It was randomized, double-blind, parallel. Placebo-controlled and clinical trial with almost 800 people. That's got all the bells and whistles. Right. So that yeah. so they really went uh, to do it. And, and what I also thought was kind of cool is if you take these herbs, you can see a 20% decrease in the amount of time you might have that cold. Within right. the first five days. Yeah. So too. that's yeah. a quarter yeah. of the time you could be sick. Right, right. right. Which you know, saves you money. Saves you yeah, money. Yeah, saves you yeah. money. You know, uh, yeah. That's the biggest thing. So I thought that was pretty great. And... Um, even though I think that the the I'm not sure if the nutrient ingredients if the that company is creates the 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 Echna horse drink that they were talking about mm. that I, I was trying to clear that up. Mm -hmm. But in general, what we really can take away from the article is that Echinacea and elderberry combined, and then even if you add a vitamin C to it, right? Yeah, you know, you're going to really see a dramatic um, increase in your treatment. Yeah, it's like a trifecta of health. Indeed. And it doesn't cost so much. Now, vitamin C, a lot of people, and you can correct me here. Okay. That is just citric acid. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. ascorbic that, acid. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Ascorbic acid. Ascorbic yeah. acid. Not yeah. citrus acid. Citric well, citric acid also has ascorbic acid oh, in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I know a lot of times, like I think at our local you grocery, can buy it bulk buy, at the grocery. You yeah. can buy six citric acid, and it's a white crystallized mm -hmm. powder. Yep. And yep. That, so you That'd said the, the other day that you, when you made your syrup, you had added. I used I, I have the white crystallized ascorbic acid okay. in a little container in my refrigerator okay. that I throw mm -hmm. in as a preservative. Do we have do we have a recipe for the syrup? Um, we have a we have some syrup recipes. I I upcoming look for <laughs> an echinacea elder syrup recipe. <laughs> and then um, this might be also a good time to promote our book. Right, right. Elder, we do have a, a, a ebook on elder. And it's got, uh, it's very user-friendly. That's one of the things we really try to reinforce with our books is introducing people to herbs one by one. We feel that that's the best way to learn about the herbs. And there's research in there, but there's also uh, stuff about uh, ethnobotany and things about um, herbs in the culture. So it's really more of a well-rounded approach 
to learning about herbs. And yeah. I mean, like most of our folio, folios as well, they'll have recipes and other things. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Recipes. Yeah. And recipes, how to grow it, how to gather so it. Mm -hmm. practical yeah. uses. How to use the it for your animals. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 We've got a lot of those pieces in there. And it's all in one easy little uh, user-friendly ebook. And if you don't have the Kindle app, just pick it up. It's free. Anybody can really put it on your on your phone or your iPad or whatever fancy dancy little electronic equipment you've got there it's a free app and anybody can have kindle there and then you can see a whole bunch of really wonderful ebooks and the world will just become magical and sparkly for you <laughs> <laughs> and even if you don't want magical and sparkly pick up our ebook pick pick it up yeah it's called elder boundary keeper yeah there you go herbalism 101 this is part of the show where sue and candace answer a listener question or teach you about an herbal definition or term covering basic to advanced herbal knowledge. If you would like the dirt on herbs, herbalism, or anything else related, you can send your question using our simple contact form at realherbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. If we choose your question for the show, we will send you a free PDF ebook, Natural Nutrition by The Practical Herbalist, currently available for $4.99 at The Practical Herbalist store. Here's Candace and Sue to discuss this show's Herbalism 101 topic. Today's question comes from Christine. Christine asks, for the oils in your salve recipes, such as calendula, St. John's wort, or grapeseed oils, would coconut oil be a good substitute? That's a two-part question, actually, is, because yeah. grapeseed oil is a straight-up oil, whereas mm -hmm. calendula and St. John's wort aren't exactly a straight-up oil, right, no, Sue? it's just a calendula and St. John's wort are infused oil, and it could be infused into a huge variety of oils. Including grapeseed, grapeseed oil. or coconut. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, coconut's a good substitute for other oils in a salve. Mm -hmm. Often it's a really good substitute for beeswax or other oils that are harder at room temperature. Right, because it has it, it once it gets to just a regular room temperature or even colder than that, it's automatically without the extra wax. Right. Uh, solid. Yes. So, but yeah. we should talk a little bit about the calendula and St. John's wort, what what a botanical infused oil is. Right. Yeah. That's the second layer of it. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. start with that or do you want to? We're, we're, oh, sure. we're building our template it. as we go, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so with the, uh, with a botanical infused oil, you take whatever herb that you want. Sometimes you want something that's aromatic. Sometimes you're going for something that has constituents that um, you're specifically looking for St. John's wort. It has this beautiful red color, and it's very healing to the nerves. And uh, calendula is uh, a great antiseptic and is very healing to the skin. So a lot of people would want those constituents in their oil, either that almond oil or olive oil or any of these other ones. And we have recipes on our site, by the way, for making these oils. And it's most of them are just taking the dry or fresh plant, chopping it up a bit, and adding it to the oil itself. And they, depending on the type of plant, some of them you have, like St. John's, where you got, you have to use the fresh. You just do. Yeah, right, right. I mean, you, you can experiment and try it with the dry, but it's mm -hmm. it, just an inferior product. And so the others, like the calendula, actually are better when right. you use it from the dry. Because then you don't have the mold. Yeah, exactly. Right. Calendula. It's a lot fresh. of moisture. Yeah. 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 So it's uh, using fresh uh 
herb with the oil can be a little tricky. My mm -hmm. personal experience, because I'm good at ruining things the first mm -hmm. 10 times. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, learning my lesson the hard way, that's my deal. Um, but if you're using fresh, it's really got to be for a good reason. And for mm -hmm. your calendula, when you've taken out the water, you can jam more plant into that. Right. And to make, make it even stronger more oil. Pool. Right. Because yeah. there's not the room for the water, which gets in the way with mold anyway. Right. Yeah. So... So you can make a botanical oil with coconut oil so long as the botanical is done, can be done at a warm temperature. Correct. Like the calendula is an excellent one for that because it removes the, or it pulls out the constituents better mm -hmm. when it's warm, when you're making an oil anyway. Yeah. And some people, if you're, if you got a hot summer, you take your calendula out and, um, you're, you're drying it. You, you put it in your, your, uh fat and in this case she's asking specifically about coconut oil and that would have to be warm enough a warm enough space that it's it's liquid right. it's not going to do anything if it's a solid right i always cover my my herbs so that it's not exposed to sunlight yeah i always do cover mine too there is something out there some people like having sun touch it but flavonoids are very light sensitive right. and flavonoids are very powerful healers so mm -hmm. why You've seen plants get bleached by the sun once they're dry. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. why why do that to all your hard work? Right. Yeah. So anyway, you're just infusing it. Then you strain out the plant material. And there you go. You've got this wonderful botanically infused oil that, can, that we mention in our recipes. Mm -hmm. And they're commonly like arnica oil. Is commonly just called arnica oil, but right. it's actually arnica infused into a base or a carrier oil. Yeah, and normally you're using mm -hmm. uh, dry arnica for mm -hmm. this one. And funny thing about arnica, you get the fresh and you'll get them flowers and you, you set them out just to kind of um, let them dry a bit so they're not so moist and they will pop and mm. just poof. They get all poofy. And once they're poofy and then really difficult to work with, that's when you're putting them into the oil. Nice. <laughs> Which is why using the dry is so much easier. You don't yes. have to deal with all that. Much easier. Yeah. So the answer there is yes, and you can actually use coconut oil as a substitute for grapeseed oil, olive oil, almond oil, or mm -hmm. any other liquid at room temperature oil. Right. So long as you're able to do it in a condition that allows you to heat the coconut oil while you're making your infused oil. Right. And people should remember that uh, I know coconut is very popular right now. There are some issues around coconut. It's not a one size fits all. Uh, some people like myself, for example, are allergic to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're like the one person in Oregon who's allergic the entire, to it. It's just me. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm queen of the coconut allergies. But um, a lot of people, for instance, people my age um, were not aware of their coconut allergy until right. Now, because coconut wasn't in everything, right? So, but the other thing to over. keep in mind is that coconut has a tendency to be slightly drying to the skin. It's Correct. not that it's bad, but if you are developing a formula for someone who has oily skin or someone who's adolescent where they've got combination, mm -hmm. coconut is going to be a slightly drying formula, right? If you already got dry skin, right? That's so, if you're wanting something that is not beeswax for your thing, for your recipe, mm -hmm. and you don't want it to be drying, you might want to try cocoa butter or shea butter. Right. Or I believe mango butter is also an another one that's um, yeah. 
softening to the skin. I've and, never and worked with it. The other thing to keep in mind is the price of some of these things. Yeah, they're all, I mean, I use coconut oil in part because of all those harder at room temperature oils. That's yeah. one of the cheapest and the easiest available because I can often find it at the grocery store. Yeah. Where's the most like coconut, cocoa butter or whatever. That that one, you're going to go to a specialty yeah. shop for it. And the old fashioned salves were from lard. Yeah. Yep, there were a lot, that's of what you had a lot of lard. That's what you know? people did. Yeah, yeah. You kept your lard; it was very useful, mm-hmm. and just add some plant matter to it, and there you go. You got your medicine right there. Yeah, so. and I mean, you know, pigs don't have their chemistry is actually not as different from ours. So it's very absorbent. So it is very absorbent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not as horrible as it sounds. Yeah, it actually is bad for you. <laughs> there's some of my older, older, older books that have some salve. They didn't call them salves at the time, but they used vegetable shortening. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I've that seen that. The, too. Yeah, that yep. was the base. And now, yeah. of course, we have so much diversity. It's easy for us to pick these more luxurious oils and these yeah. luxurious. We have a um, the how do you how do you say this? Carnuba, carnuba wax. Yeah, carnuba. yeah, carnuba. Carnuba. Yeah, carnuba. I made a salve <laughs> using that, and so I thought oh, I'll make a vegan uh, right. salve yeah. for my people that are vegan. Mm. And I used the same proportion beeswax. It probably came out rock hard, didn't oh it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. What a mistake that was. So I had to reheat yeah. it, add a ton more oil, and yeah. it was shiny. My goodness. Mm. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, I could I could see my reflection practically. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, there's a reason why people use carnauba wax to polish their cars and to polish, like, wood and, mm-hmm. you know, as a wood finish and that sort of thing. Well, it worked great for that. It does. I got to say. And it's from... A palm, the extract is from the palm leaf and it is food grade, but yeah. you, sometimes you got to experiment a little bit with it. Right. And, you know, yeah, the proportion of coconut oil or carnauba or whatever you use might be different from what the recipe says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, I was not going off of a recipe at all. I was just, well, I was yeah. using our recipe and then just right. figuring it would be the same kind of thing. Mistake. Yeah. No, not Mistake. so much so. Yeah. So the um, beeswax. And um, when you're heating and making a, a salve, uh, keep in mind that your beeswax is going to heat at, at uh, between 150 and 165 degrees with your botanical oils. You don't want it to get any uh, hotter than that because it will start to smoke and then you're going to lose a lot of your constituents. Right. And for those of you who use metric, I'm not sure what 165 145 or whatever. Oh, in it's, Celsius. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to say that's Fahrenheit because we do actually have a few people that listen to us from not America. There's a, there's a place Everybody beyond else. America? What? Yeah, the rest of the whole entire world doesn't use Fahrenheit. I don't know, other than Game of Thrones. I don't have a good geography here. Yeah, But the, you're, you're, you got to keep an eye on that. You, certainly, you don't want it. Uh, any hotter than the just to melt your beeswax if you get it to 200 god forbid that it's all just going to smoke and right and what are what are you getting yeah. anyway there's no point you're destroying it you'll discolor your wax if you get a, above 185 anyway so keep all those good things in mind but i expect the real answer here is would coconut oil be a good substitute sure but you gotta wiggle with it a little bit be willing yep. to experiment exactly Thank you for listening to Real Herbalism Radio. Your hosts have been Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. To find more information and recipes from today's show or to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at realherbalismradio.com. 
If you're feeling social, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thepracticalherbalist. Don't forget to look up our ebooks and herbal folios at amazon.com. Use the search terms practical herbalist. This show has been sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of high-quality organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. You can visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. If you'd like to sponsor Real Herbalism Radio, just contact us through our website at realherbalismradio.com contact. Until next time, this is Patrick with Real Herbalism Radio and The Practical Herbalist. <laughs>